Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. The scripture reading today comes from 1 Kings 17, 8 through 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which along to Sidon, and there live. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out and went to Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she, as well as he and her household, ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This is the word of God for the people of God. So you know what I think is awesome? I think it's awesome that that guy gets to say he was in the Return of the Jedi. Forevermore, 75th dude in the left phalanx, apart from where the emperor is coming onto the Death Star, forevermore, when he's playing golf with his buddies, when he's at his retirement facility, no matter what that guy does, that guy gets to say that he was in Return of the Jedi. And he can always say that, truthfully. He has bragging rights over almost anybody else of being part of one of the biggest movie franchises in the world. And the thing is, is that I couldn't find this guy's name anywhere. That's what I did with my week this week, is I tried to look for that guy's name. I just poured down a list of extras. I was trying to find any list of extras in Return of the Jedi. There's not a list that I could find anywhere, not even a blog site of anybody bragging about being 75th guy on the left side in Return of the Jedi as his claim to fame. There's nothing. No one cares about that guy. How many of you guys know his name? I didn't think so, right? But what happens if we take him out? What happens if we take all of those guys out? None of those people had—I don't know what happened with any of their acting careers. I have no idea if they even made a community theater stage after Return of the Jedi, but they were in that one scene. But if you just take a simple black paintbrush in Microsoft Paint and wipe the entire Stormtrooper Legion out, it looks like this. Now, when the Emperor comes onto the Death Star in Return of the Jedi, does that look very intimidating? Right? Nobody cares who that guy is, or so we think, until he's not there. 
Now let me show you a different example. I want to, and I'll ask you a question before I show you two 30-second film clips from a movie that, if you are an American and have a soul, you should know what this movie is. Um, so I'll ask you a question. Does anybody know who Bill Canty is? Yeah, I didn't know who he was either, and I, and I didn't think anybody would know. But watch these film clips, and we'll see who he is. sounds a little funny, doesn't it? Right? That's the most boring 30 seconds of your life. You can go watch people cycle on Winnicoff, and it's more exciting than uh, this little clip from Rocky with Sly Stallone running up, you know, just watching someone running. But enter Bill Canty into the equation, and you get this. So you go from the boring, most boring 30 seconds of your life to a cultural moment. I mean, those of us who have played athletics on some level or another, the one high school football game I got to play in, I'm walking down the tunnel thinking, right? It is a cultural icon of music that, I mean, I don't even know if Rocky wins the Oscar if it's not for the score that is just so legendary and inspiring and, and bringing these great moments together. And it doesn't happen without Bill Canty, and Bill Canty is the third choice composer for the score of Rocky One. Two other guys who were recruited to do it passed up on the offer because the uh, producer said, we will pay you $25,000 to do this score. And this is 1970s, 1980s money that's a little bit higher than it sounds like today, but it's still not very much for that certain job in that certain industry. So they say, we'll pay you $25,000, but Every expense you have to produce the score comes out of that $25,000. So Bill Canty basically got paid like maybe $10,000 to produce the entire Rocky score because every instrument, every production studio, everything he had to do, he paid for, and, and no one else wanted to do this until they got to Bill, who wasn't doing a whole lot at the moment. And, and so they found Bill and said, would you do this? And he's like, sure, what else do I have to do? The, the voices in that, there's only 30 words ever spoken in that, in that song. Um, flying high now, getting strong now. Um, he didn't have vocalists at his disposal, but his wife worked at a radio station. So he called his wife at the radio station and said, hey, can anybody sing there? And she said, sure, we got a few people who can make it. And he said, great, on your lunch hour, come down to the production studio. I'll make sandwiches for everybody, and you can lay down some vocals. So the main score for an Oscar-winning movie was produced by a third-choice guy who barely made any money off it and used people and paid them in sandwiches to make it happen. Your cultural moment, your inspiring sports moment is brought to you by a sandwich. Uh, this is 
the uh, just ultimate underdog story, and it fits with the movie, but no one has known, no one knows who Bill Canty is, but Rocky isn't the same without him. It's not the same without the sandwich people. It's not the same without his wife. It's not the same without all of these elements that fit together, these really small, tiny elements of 75th guy in the Star Wars Brigade that we don't care about him until we don't have them anymore. Until we don't see the impact that every single little detail, every single person makes. And this is where we know that God is a God of the small people, a God of the small things, a God of the details. If God knows every hair on our head, God knows our name before we were even born, that God is in the small things. And the Bible is filled with the Bill Canties of the world or the random imperial stormtrooper guy of the world. The Bible is filled with these characters this supporting cast. Our church is filled with these people, right? We've got Patrick and Aubrey back, uh, Kathy and Bill, who are running media. We've got people commenting online right now to make people feel connected. The ushers who collect offering that goes to make all of this happen. Um, not everyone can pronounce Zarephath like Sarah Brown did uh, so well, uh, so wonderfully. And then all the way down to, I saw Stephanie McCafferty was back making sure the kitchen was clean so that it was a hospitable environment and we could extend that to the pre-K teachers who are taking care of some of your children, as well as the volunteers who say yes to teaching Sunday school for adults or kids alike. There are so many different moving parts that we don't recognize in what makes ministry and life happen, but we should, because the Bible is filled with random guys like Bill Canty who make this all happen. So how many of you have heard of Elijah? before. Just raise your hand if you've heard of Elijah, right? You probably have. Elijah's kind of a bigwig. Elijah is this prophet um, that in, in the Old Testament. I'll just put up some background information if you want to read it while I'm talking, but Elijah's this big-time prophet that shows up in Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the transfiguration on top of the mountain. Um, Jesus kind of illuminates, and Moses and Elijah appear next to him in the Jewish way of thinking um, that they're waiting on the Messiah to come. They think that Elijah will precede the Messiah. He's that important. Um, the, uh, John the Baptist is seen as an Elijah figure for Christians, as Jesus is seen as the Messiah. So Elijah's a really big deal, and he's a really big deal because in 1 Kings— First and Second Kings was all one book. First and Second Samuel was all one book. It was split when um, the New Testament was translated into Greek. Uh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek called the Septuagint. They split them up. Um, it's all one story. And if First and Second Samuel is the rise of the Davidic monarchy, like the penultimate God-blessed nation of Israel, First and Second Kings is everything on the downslope of when it gets worse. So First Kings has this rhythmic pattern to it of so-and-so became king in this year. This is who they took the throne from. This is the bad stuff they did. This is who God replaced them with. That's the entire book. You don't need to go read it. I mean, you should go read it, but you don't need to go read it. I just told you the entire book. Um, and Ahab enters into the equation around in, in chapter 16. And Ahab is kind of the penultimate, okay, we need to do something about this. It's so awful. And Ahab marries Jezebel. And if you haven't heard of the phrase, a Jezebel, uh, Jezebel is this woman from Sidon, the same place that the, the widow we're talking about is from. And this, it's kind of the epicenter of worship of Baal, who is this sto Canaanite storm god, if you will. It's kind of the head god in Canaanite culture. And if there's one thing that we can learn from Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, that the worst thing you could do in Hebrew culture was to worship a god equal to or even above Yahweh, the, the chief god of Israel, and the god we say is the only god now. Uh, so Jezebel brings all of these gods with her in this marriage to Ahab, and Ahab happily 
starts building temples to Baal and sacred poles to Asheroth and, and uh, putting other uh, witnesses to these gods in the actual, like, not the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple in Samaria that had been built for the northern kingdom. So Ahab has fully invested and integrated these foreign gods into Israelite culture in the northern kingdom. So he is the worst of the worst coming up. So God decides to come in here and take action. And God sends Elijah in and says, go and tell Ahab there's going to be a drought. Because Ahab's behavior is going to punish basically all of Israel as Ahab is the figurehead of Israel. Now the problem when you put a drought upon the land, and we can learn this in Matthew 5, is God makes it rain upon the just and the unjust. It's kind of the, yes, bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, it's all going to be sorted out in the end, but for the moment, there's rain on everybody. And so if there's rain on everybody, there's also not rain on everybody. So this drought is affecting Elijah as well. He's got no water. The wadi is is drying up. And who do you normally look to when you need help? Well, the, the rich and powerful king is the cause of all of this. So he's kind of out. The influential queen is also the cause of all of this. So she's kind of out. Even Obadiah, who there's another biblical book, Obadiah. He's kind of this court prophet um, with Ahab. And he's kind of working under the sly uh, for God, trying to do some good on the sly, but he's still part of it. So the, even the chief famous prophet of that time couldn't be relied upon. So everyone we usually look to when we are lacking, the rich, the powerful, the famous, the stellar, the athletic, all of the creme de la creme, those people are out. And God comes to Elijah and says, no, go to this person. Go find the widow who's only got enough food for basically one more meal, who's got no hope anymore, who, by the way, is a Baal worshiper. In the scripture that Sarah read, the, the woman says to Elijah, your God, there is no connection here. The scripture reader, the, the author, wants us to know very clearly that there is a, in, a complete divide between Elijah and this woman. There is a resource gap between this woman and anybody who would be considered helpful. Uh, there is a religious divide that—there's uh, an ethnic divide. There's also a religious divide of people as, who as, you assume God would never meet or use. And there's a hope divide of Elijah who's trying to do God's ministry and this woman who has absolutely nothing to offer, or so we would think. This is where God shows up in, in the little boy who has five loaves and two fishes in the feeding of the 5,000. Right, the disciples, Jesus, all these people are looking for solutions. And, and the, the little boy with five loaves and two fishes does just this audacious thing. And the only heroic action he takes is that he's willing to share. We tend to, tend to leave some of these people out when we teach Sunday school. I mean, we get to five loaves and two fishes and we teach how Jesus multiplied this. But we kind of leave the supporting cast out because we're really big fans of Rocky Balboa and John Wayne or Captain Marvel or pick your superhero where they can do everything themselves. And there's a tendency to look at great figures like Moses or Elijah and just think, well, obviously they can save the day, but God doesn't empower them to just pull up their own bootstraps and just go take out the army all by themselves. God points to these small, insignificant characters that we don't care about unless they're not there. This widow of Zarephath who has no hope, no resources, nothing to share, but she can make the, audi the audacious action that she matters. 
the audacious action to be generous and share. And Elijah even tells her that God is with you. And this is kind of the audacity of 1 Kings anyway. 1 Kings is this whole narrative from front to end in which we often look for the great king, the famous one, the most athletic, the richest, whatever the most powerful is, that we often look for those people to help. And 1 Kings is a narrative that, all of the, that above all those people, no matter how those people act, behave, or good or bad, that our prosperity and providence comes from God alone. And this is why these people like the widow are used often. Is so that we don't tend to latch on to a celebrity figure or a political figure or a king or a power figure. We don't latch on to them because they're always going to fail at some moment. But God is someone who never fails, and God always opens up the potential and the possibility. And so God uses these really small people to show us that we have a hope, and we have a future, and that if we rely upon and trust in God, well, then all things are possible. So Elijah comes to this widow, and the widow has doubts, but God uses a Baal worshiper Right. Who do we often look to? We look for the most faithful, the most powerful, the, the most spiritual. And God goes to the person who's not even a Jewish believer and gets it done. Because the message here is that if God believes in us, then we should believe in us. If God says it's possible, we should think it's possible. If God uh, claims that we have potential, then we should claim that potential. And a lot of it has to do with generosity and kindness and the way that we show love in the world. A few years ago, which is longer than I remember now, I mean, it was like 10 years ago now. I've been in ministry for a while, but about 10 years ago, I was over at Stonebridge United Methodist. It's in West McKinney. It's in Stonebridge Ranch, another Methodist church. I was an associate there. And uh, we uh, would often do these kind of big audacious plays, or the youth group would do these big audacious days and uh, they were raising money for youth missions. So instead of doing this kind of prolonged fundraiser, um, the youth director just said, you know what? We're going to raise $5,000 in one Sunday in youth donations. And so they did a car wash out. You could drop your keys off, and the youth would wash your car while you were in worship. And then they had bake sales and everything along the hall. They kind of turned the church into a temple, but Jesus didn't turn anything over because I think it was for a good cause. So uh, there was opportunities to give at every moment. We even that day said, and we never do this, right? Because every offering matters to the ministry of the church. We rely upon gifts and offering matters. Um, But we said, you know what? Every dollar given in the offering plate today is going to go to youth missions. And so People were generous, and we said, you know what, we're going to count it immediately, and at the end of the day, at noon, we're going to announce that we've reached this goal, and we're going to send these youth off to do amazing things in the world. So we're all excited. There was a buzz around the campus, and we got to noon, kind of the close of my service, and and my service always ran late because I'm long-winded, and we had long songs, and so it was more like 12, 10, 12, 15, that they they marched in. They had already counted in the other service, uh, came in, and said, all right, grand total today. $4,980. $4,980. And there was kind of this, I mean, it was a little bit like y'all. It was kind of like, oh man, we didn't hit it. Now, I'm sure you've driven somewhere in Stonebridge Ranch. It looks a little bit like Stacy Ridge, Lucas, Fairview. There is $20 in somebody's pocket there. Now, the backside of the story is, is, is a few months before this, probably six, five months before this, there was a Sunday school class that had started serving pretty intently in what's called the Samaritan Inn in McKinney. If y'all are familiar with that, it's, a, uh, it's more than a homeless shelter. People go live there, and they're empowered with job skills and life skills and budgeting, and, and they get back on track from hard uh, situations. So 
This was kind of on the uh, tail end of the recession. Um, so the Samaritan was pretty full. Sunday school class was serving over there. And they kind of got this justice bent around, you know what, we go serve over there, which is what the church should do. We should go out and we should be, we should do, we should do ministry in the world. But um, they were thinking, well, why are we just going to them and then we get to come back to our comfort area? Maybe we should invite them to worship with us. So as a connection, we can get to know them as people more than just, you know, people we're serving. So they invited people, you know, uh, they didn't have cars. They said, we'll come pick you up. So they started picking up seven residents of the Samaritan Inn to come over and they would worship in the bridge. And by and large, they all sat in the back. At first, they were really embarrassed to be there. Um, so we said, you know what? Let's have them read scripture. Let's have them usher. Let's uh, invite them to be part of our community um, so we can, you know, get to know them. So they did. They read scripture and they ushered. And it was still this kind of great relationship. So um, this one day, we were announcing this big total. And, and I'm thinking— all right, I've got 20 bucks in my pocket, but I want to give somebody, I've already given, I want to give somebody who hasn't having a chance to be the hero here and come through with this $20. And, and I'm thinking, you know, and, and this, we've got like 400 people in this room. And sure enough, this woman named Krista comes from the back. Krista had made a connection with our worship leader. They were both big Michigan football fans, and Krista had read scripture a few times. And so Krista, this woman who lives in a homeless shelter, comes up with 20 bucks and says, I've got it, I've got it. Right? And she lays it down on this little makeshift altar we had, and everybody went wild and was celebrating. It was, this, it was this really great day of recognizing that she gave because someone told her she could. Someone told her she was more than somebody in a homeless shelter. Someone told her she had potential and, and opportunity to live out in God's ministry. She could participate in God was doing no matter how small she was. And it was this fantastic moment of how God uses the most unexpected, the littlest among us, the people that we don't know their names sometimes, to do the greatest work and make the biggest impact. But here's the thing. Krista should have never happened to give that $20. Why is a church in Stonebridge Ranch relying upon a woman in a homeless shelter to give $20? Are you with me on that? Why is a, a church in Stonebridge Ranch relying on a woman who lives in a homeless shelter to give $20? And it's because, as I look back, and even in that moment, you can recognize there's still this culture of scarcity that existed in that room. And a culture of scarcity is one where we say, I don't have enough. I, I am not enough. I don't have I need to make sure that I can, can, you know, control what I can control, right? It, it's not a trust. It's that I need to make sure that I'm comfortable in myself. I need to make sure I'm protective of myself. I don't have enough. And we hear this with more than money, too. I've heard it from many of y'all to say, I just don't know if I'm spiritual enough to do that. The biggest one I hear is I'll invite someone to do a Bible study, and they'll say, I just don't know if I know enough about the Bible to do a Bible study. The point of a Bible study is to learn about the Bible. I just want to throw that out there. Right? But it's this culture of, I'm not enough. I don't have enough. I don't really have anything to offer, whether it's my love, whether it's my generosity, whether it's my time. I don't have enough was the pervading feeling in that room, except for a woman who lived in a homeless shelter, a widow of Zarephath, a third-rate composer, the guy standing on the edge of the imperial deck, that made it happen. And there's one message that you need to hear in 1 Kings besides, uh, besides it's God who is our main factor, that if God is our main factor and we can trust that God will provide, then the other message in there is that no matter how small you may feel, you are part of that bigger picture and you are part of that bigger plan. 
If you are a widow, if you are the guy standing on the side, if you're a third-rate composer, whoever you may be, you matter in the greater story of God. Elijah doesn't make it to drive out the prophets of Baal if it's not for a non-believing widow in the heart of Baal worship country. Right? We don't make it as a church if it's not for the person who is taking care of the kitchen or the sound person that you don't recognize in the back or the person who cleans up the bathrooms afterward. We don't make it as a church if we don't have the preschool teachers there. And I often get a lot of people who give me a whole lot of credit. And yes, I do some stuff here. But there are so many different moving parts. And there are so many different moving parts to God's mission in this world. It is an incredibly important part to come to worship regularly. It is incredibly important to come uh, to, to draw life lessons out of the Bible. It is incredibly important to serve as part of a church mission. But let's say you're not physically capable of that. And you're just simply asked to be generous with your smile on a daily basis. You're asked to be generous to uh, recognize how blessed we are to be able to go to a restaurant and have somebody serve us. And to be able to be generous with that person financially, but also just treating them well. There is the difference between a culture of scarcity that says, I don't have enough smiles or money or time to offer, versus the abundant love of Jesus who says, I have come to give them life and life abundantly, and it says, I always have something to offer. And no matter how small you feel or insignificant you feel or how small of a part you might play, we would miss you on this earth. We would miss you in this church. We would miss you in God's vision. You are incredibly important. And I hope when you leave here today, you walk looking at yourself in the mirror as recognizing how vital you are. The scene doesn't look the same without you which means you have something to offer. And it means that everybody you meet, you have something to give, something to bless them with. And if you're afraid of not having enough, we serve a God of abundance. And that God does provide. Can we pray? Gracious God, you have poured out all that you have, and yet when we come to you, we can still find more. For those who are feeling down and out, you never seem to have a lack of spirit to pour into them so that they might be uplifted and see hope again. For those who are striving to give one more hour to some kids who are hungry for acceptance and love, you never seem to have a lack of energy to pour into them once those in that energy bubbles in that Sunday school room. For those who are, are feeling, God, like they just are struggling to hold on, you never seem to not give them the person that they need to hold their hand and give them assistance walking through. So God, we are blessed that you are a God above any ruler, above any power. You are a God who continues to give and continues to be the source of our prosperity and grace. And so, God, we ask that your Spirit might be so thick around us and within us that we could never overlook the abundance of your life, the abundance of your mercy, and the abundance of your love so that we would know that we always have something to share. And no matter how small, 
that we matter. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.